0: So if you type in the words persecution of the church 2023, I know because that's what I typed in, um, in the Google search engine, it reveals this globally, more than 360 million Christians suffer at least high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. In 1993, Christians faced high to extreme levels of persecution in 40 countries. This number has now nearly doubled to 76 countries. If the numbers are accurate, it accounts for one out of every seven professing believer. In light of this, The Apostle Peter has a word for the church in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 22. This is the word of God to his people. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Church, we ought not be surprised to experience persecution for our faith. Verse 13 is rhetorical. There will always be people who seek to either hinder or harm those who follow after Jesus. Remember where Christ spoke to his disciples in John 15 at the start of verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If we are honest, what makes it hard for us to live out our Christian faith with boldness? Perhaps it is the uncertainty of the cost. Perhaps it is the concern for ostracism. Perhaps it is the fear of injury or death. Peter was writing to an audience of Christians living for Jesus in a world growing more and more hostile toward them, whether through the government, the workplace, or even the home. Ironically, Christians were originally called atheists. Huh, never thought that, would you? But they were called atheists because they denied the validity of many different Roman gods. The early church refused, you see, to indulge in the practice of a pagan culture. And so living in an environment where they would suffer for bearing witness to Christ, it could prove easy for believers to become discouraged Peter brings a word of encouragement to persecuted Christians by referencing the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8 revealed that Noah and his family represented an extreme minority in a time of extreme wickedness. Can you imagine how uncertain, how ostracized, How fearful Noah might have felt while building an ark amid such a time of pervasive evil! Can you imagine how the surrounding culture must have treated him in the stance that he and his family took for God? Peter says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, listen! If Noah kept on building the ark, you can keep on living for Jesus. And that seems like a solid word of encouragement to the church right now. The reported statistics most certainly suggest that we live in a world becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian worldview. Christians are characterized as intolerant They are characterized as ignorant if they reject the practices of a relativistic, pluralistic world, just in the same way as Peter's audience rejected the polytheistic culture of its day. R.C. Sproul explains in relativism, there are particulars, but no universals. Relatives, but no absolutes. This means we can have values but no value, truths but no truth, purpose but no purpose. But the genuine Christian church embraces absolute truth. We realize that God is creator of the heavens and the earth. We report that Jesus Christ is the world's redeemer, the only way, truth, and life. We recognize that the Holy Spirit inspired an infallible and errant word of God, and we commit to stand on those absolutes even in the face of ridicule. The genuine Christian church embraces clear values. We affirm that God made humanity in His image. Male and female, He made them. We acknowledge the sanctity of marriage. We acknowledge the sanctity of life. And we commit to stand on such values even in the face of scorn. The genuine Christian church embraces eternal purpose. We carry the gospel to a fallen world for the glory of our King. And we commit to this purpose no matter what obstacles we may face. So in the face of ridicule, scorn, obstacles, keep living for Jesus. Like Noah, I beseech you, to build upon the only foundation that will stand when the rains come. In Matthew 724 to 27, Jesus himself says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So it is, church. We must stand firm on the principles for our faith. There is a contemporary Christian song out right now that ends with this refrain Fear is not my future. You are. You are. Sickness is not my story. You are. You are. Heartbreak's not my home. You can't stay here no more. You are. You are. Death is not the end, Jesus. You are. You are. See, for the Christian, fear should not define us. Jesus says to his disciples multiple times, do not be afraid. Fear is not your future. And the reason we should not fear resides in the principles for our faith principles that establish the content of our witness as well as the courage for our witness. Peter makes a threefold declaration in verses 18 and 19 and then in verse 22. Jesus, while being perfectly righteous, was put to death by and for the unrighteous. Jesus was made alive in the Spirit and was resurrected From the dead, Jesus has gone back to heaven at the right hand of his Father. The fear of the grave has been removed by Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. We need not fear some atomic. Holocaust. We need not fear a terrorist attack. We need not fear the grip of cancer. We need not fear being persecuted for Christ's sake because we have victory in Jesus. And so follower of Jesus Christ, do not be afraid to testify to that which is true. Neither through what you say or how you say it, nor by what you do. Or how you do it. So let me ask you can you articulate the gospel message and explain why you embrace it as truth? Do you have an answer to give when people ask why it is that you possess an unyielding hope in God? I am a sinner, I need salvation. There's only one way. A man or woman, a boy or girl can be saved. That is because Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and he died the death that I deserved at Calvary. But the glory of it all is, church, we don't gather to worship a dead Savior. We gather to worship a risen one. He is resurrected from the grave and he is sitting now at the right hand of God the Father until his father says, go, get your bride. I know this gospel to be true because of the inexplicable reliability of God's word as tested against every other written document in the history of humanity. I know this gospel to be true because of the indisputable eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection and the fact that the tomb remains empty. I know this gospel to be true because of the incomprehensible conversion of men like Saul of Tarsus. Oh, there are so many answers to give for the hope that resides within me. Those are just but a few. And yet the gospel that I wholeheartedly embrace as true proves offensive. To people, It steps on toes. We don't like to hear that we can't be God of our lives anymore. We want to decide what's right for ourselves. We don't want to hear God's Word say, but this is true. And so we take offense at the Gospel. Let me just say that while the Gospel steps on toes, while the Gospel can be offensive, You and I must take great care not to be the cause for offense. You and I must take great care to speak the truth with gentleness and respect to and for all. Persons That includes those who revile you. That includes those who persecute you. That includes those who don't look like you, who don't talk like you, who don't think like you. We approach individuals not with the spirit of, I'm going to beat you over the head with something. We approach them with gentleness, with love, with respect. The humility of our lives is as easily as important, as is the boldness of our words. It should be evident to others by our character and by our conduct that we are Christ followers. So take time to think about ways that our words and our lives can bear witness to others for Jesus. And then think about ways that our words and our lives could hurt the testimony of Jesus. I've always found Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6 somewhat intriguing. It comes on the tail end of his instruction for us not to judge others with a condemning or critical spirit. And as he has said that, he then says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, I've read commentator after commentator on that text and and many of them in fairness you should know differ with my perspective. It is a perspective that says, well, some people are just not yet ready or receptive to the gospel. Be careful who you take the gospel to. I don't think that's Jesus' intent at all. I don't think it's contextual even. Instead, I think Christ is saying, if we address other individuals, if we approach other individuals as if they're mangy street dogs or if they're unclean swine, Why would you ever expect that they would receive from you any constructive or corrective words? How are we approaching individuals who need to hear a fresh word from Jesus? How do we perceive them? How do we speak to them? This much is certain through our words and our works. God calls us to be a blessing. And in this particular context, Peter is not saying that we are called to bless God. In this particular context, Peter is not saying that we are called to bless one another in the church. And certainly we are. But he is saying here that we must bless those who persecute us. Hmm. That's consistent, by the way, with Jesus' words in Luke 6, verse 28, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. That's consistent, by the way, with the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 12, 14, to bless those who persecute you, to bless and not to curse. The principle is clear. As Christians, we are called to bless the ungodly ruler. As Christians we are called to bless the unjust employer. As Christians we are called to bless the difficult husband or the difficult wife. We are called to bless those who hold us in contempt. We are called to bless those who call us names and we are to always do this with a spirit of gentleness and respect and I, you know this is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but just hear me out. We played a preseason basketball game, and it's a really good team, and they got these really big dudes, and, and apparently these big dudes like to talk a little bit of smack you know, during the game. That's what Whitman was telling me. I don't really hear the smack talking. I think it's kind of more you know, under their breath or whatever. Who knows what they're saying? And I told the team before we played them, whenever those boys start to talk smack to you, whenever those boys start to say whatever they say to you, you just say, God bless you, brother. That's that's your that's your comeback every time. Now I don't know if women was out there blessing them or not, but you know that's that was the charge I gave to my team. Believe me, I, I get that when women's out there getting pounded and beat and, and, and guys are talking smack to them, it's not easy to say, God bless you, brother. Okay, but thankfully when we live like that in today's world, if we live like that, chapter 3 and verse 9 says, we will obtain a blessing. And in this way, follower of Jesus, that is how we pattern our faith. If Noah, with the task that he was given, felt ostracized, scorned, persecuted, and perhaps fearful in his day, How much more could we say that of Jesus? If we feel a measure of ostracism, scorn, persecution, and fear in our day, how much more could we say it of Jesus? He was falsely accused, he was persecuted, he was ostracized, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he bore the sins of the world on an old rugged cross. Once again, this points to our threefold declaration of faith. Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, suffered death for the ungodly at the hands of the unrighteous. And what did he do? He blessed his enemies. He did not curse, but he prayed, Father, forgive them. Three days dead and buried, God the Father then blessed Jesus by raising His only begotten Son from the grave, exalting Him to sit at His mighty right hand. And yet before the Lord's ascension, Peter says, after being made alive, He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were being disobedient long ago. Now I heard and AT Sunday school class that they were talking about a debatable issue. As a matter of fact, I was pulled aside by a man sitting in the back telling me he was going to correct me of all my wrongs. And I have many, okay? And I might be wrong here too. Just bear with me, all right? And so this is a difficult text, and there are multiple interpretations of it. It should not divide the body of believers. But I think that Jesus is making an official announcement to the fallen angels about his victory through his resurrection that he secures for the church. I think this because the spirit, the word spirits is almost universally used in scripture to refer to angels and they would definitely be fallen ones in this context. Moreover, the Greek word that Peter uses for preach to or made proclamation to is not the same word for evangelism. Instead, it is used in verse 19 to make an official declaration about. In other words, Jesus is not proclaiming the gospel to anyone dead or from the past, he is announcing to the angels, authorities, and powers that you see referenced in verse 22, that his resurrection has secured eternal victory for those like Noah. But it also means doom for those outside the ark of salvation. God was long-suffering during the time of Noah, yet only his family believed. Only his family was saved. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the apostle indicates that God remains long-suffering during our day and age. We do not know how many will respond to the offer of salvation in Jesus. We only know how they will respond. Genesis 6 and verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, like us, was saved through the grace of God. Only yet again, the text reads somewhat difficult here. Peter says in verses 20 and 21, in it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ooh, another tough text and one that is debated by many a biblical scholar. I offer yet again my interpretation as best I can render it to you. In the same way that the ark delivered Noah's family from the flood, by God's grace, Christ shelters us from death and his power. But what are we to make of being saved through water or through baptism? We can safely say that Noah's salvation was brought about by the same means that God's judgment was carried out upon the wicked. Both deliverance and destruction came through the floodwaters. Don't you see it? Those in the ark were saved. Those outside the ark were left to perish. So all who refused to enter into the ark died. Peter explains that the flood water during the time of Noah functions as a pattern for believers on this side of the cross. You see the Christian believer is immersed And the waters of baptism. And that is actually a representation of both judgment and salvation. Why do I say that? Either we are buried with Christ and made alive in Him, or we remain dead in our sin. Either Christ bears the judgment of death that we deserve and we share in His resurrection Or we must bear the judgment upon ourselves because of our refusal to take shelter in Jesus. Listen to Paul's words carefully in Romans 6 verse 4. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's why we practice baptism by immersion. We do it as a symbol, as a visual representation of the gospel. You see, you were dead, but Christ bore your judgment, and now you've been risen with him in newness of life. That's the picture of salvation, and we see it through baptism. So it is. Baptism is a symbol. Right? <laughs> Salvation comes only through God's grace by faith in Christ as the crucified, as the resurrected, and as the ascended Lord. There it is, our threefold declaration as a church once again. Please hear it. Please embrace it. Please know it. Please cling to it. Please rest in it. Jesus died for you. He was rose in power for you. And he ascended to the right hand of God and he's coming again for you if you are in the ark of his salvation. Baptism. A sign and a seal of what Christ alone can do for you. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The takeaway message to all who live for Jesus in today's world is this. Whether you agree or you disagree with the position that I take on this difficult text, that's not essential. What is essential is that you embrace what is clear, what is central, what is true in this text. Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, has triumphed. He has won. He has secured your victory. Church of God, that deserves an amen from everyone. It really does. Victory is in him. And you have it. If you place your hope and your faith in him and him alone, you are in the ark of his salvation and nothing can touch you. Oh, the world may be filled with uncertainty, but this much is certain. Victory in Jesus. Christ has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God. And angels, authorities, and powers are all in submission to him. Do not be afraid. If you take Shelter in Jesus, if you place your faith and hope in Christ, fear is not your future. Heaven is. The presence of Christ is. And I'm not saying that there aren't things that can cause us fear, but I would tell you that David writes. At the start of Psalm 27, Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the light of my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Did Noah stumble and fall? I don't think so. Did he perish? I don't see it. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, though war break out around me, the war is all about me, I will be confident of what? Victory in Jesus. And so it is, Paul could later write to the church in Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, (coughs) church, if God is for you, You know it, right? You know how it ends. If he's for you, who can be against you? And the answer is no one. The answer is nothing. Do I have hope? Oh, I have hope. I have hope in a resurrected king whose tomb remains empty. That's where I have hope. And so, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of persecution, take heart. Do not be afraid to live for Jesus in today's world. Let me say it one more time. Don't be afraid to live for the risen King. Because he wins every time. He wins. Pray with me. Lord, I I'm just overjoyed today. I'm overjoyed because of what you've done. I'm overjoyed because I've been baptized. Not because the act saves me. No. It's because of what it represents that saves me. You bore my sin in the grave, but you overcame it. And so victory is for all who look at you and say, I want you as my shelter, as my ark, as my Savior and Lord. I ask, Holy Spirit, that today, if someone here needs to get right with Christ, if someone here today needs to enter in to the ark of your salvation, I ask today, Christ Jesus, that you would move through the Holy Spirit and bring it about and make it so. All in your name I pray. Amen.